Hello and welcome to the 15th episode of Inside Music. I'm your host, James Shotwell, and on this week's episode, Scott Heisel, former managing editor for Alternative Press Magazine, founder of Youth Conspiracy Records, and someone I think everyone can agree is not afraid to speak their mind. Before we get to that conversation, I need to tell you about our sponsors. Inside Music is made possible by Holix, the internet's leading digital distribution platform. Whether you're looking to get your music in front of the press or you simply want a little help fighting piracy, Holix has the tools you need. For more information on Holix and access to a free 30-day trial, visit www.holix.com. That's www.h-a-u-l-i-x.com. Okay, let's get to the show. How are the holidays for you? They were uh, they were pretty good, very hectic. My uh, both my family and my wife's family are both from Illinois, as where we're from too. And so we go home for the holidays every year, back to Illinois for a week or two weeks. And uh, because they're just close enough together, they're only about an hour apart. It's constant ping ponging back and forth between my family and her family, and my friends and her friends, and my siblings and her siblings. It's just nonstop family visits for like twelve days straight, and uh, it's fun because you eat a lot of delicious food. Because uh, her mom bakes like 10,000 cookies every year. But uh, it's nice to be back in Cleveland. I really enjoy being here. It's nice to have my own bed that, <laughs> that I can spread out in. So so do you grow up in Illinois then? Is that yeah, where you're from? I, yep. I was uh, born and raised in Rockford, Illinois, which is uh, about 90 minutes northwest of Chicago. Uh, its biggest claim to fame is Cheap Trick came from there. You know, I want oh, you to yeah. want to surrender. Uh, I played in bands with their kids in high school. It was fun. Um, so yeah, so I, I grew up in, in Rockford, went to college in the Quad Cities, uh, which is in the Illinois-Iowa border, which is uh, best known now for where Day Trotter is based out of. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, I moved to Cleveland in 2004 when AP hired me. So. Oh, okay, okay, I follow. I've never been like to the north of Chicago part of Illinois. I've been south of Chicago, so when you say Illinois and it's not Chicago, I immediately picture just like empty flat lands. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much that's pretty much anything below <laughs> is that. We're, Rockford is pretty industrialized, which is nice. It, it, it was for the longest period of time the second biggest city in Illinois. Now I think it's the third, but uh, there's actually things that happen there occasionally. So <laughs> occasionally, now occasionally, yeah. Do you, so do you go back more often than just Christmas? Is it a lot or? Um, this year actually, or I, I say this year as in like 2014. I actually did go back um, a number of times. Um, just like I had a bunch of vacation days that I was like, I never take my vacation. I'm gonna start just taking a week off and just going to visit my family or helping my sister move into a new house, that kind of stuff. But usually it's mostly just Christmas when we when we both gonna go back. But we try to see our family in some capacity like throughout the year. Like whether it's we have a, like my family has like a, a like a cabin in Michigan and like they'll come to visit us and stuff like that. So we try to see them, but it's mostly just the holidays when I get back to Rockford, and that's pretty much enough and uh, that's a, no, no no slight to anyone who lives in Rockford or works in Rockford or does good things in Rockford because there is a, a nice creative scene there but you know anywhere you grow up you don't want to stay there it's that's just that's just the, the, you know you can be born and raised in New York City you want to get out you know that's just the way it works you want to leave wherever you came from yeah so definitely what now when you say family like what what is your family how big is your family it's not too big. You know, it's it's funny. When I was growing up, I thought it was a big family because I was like, wow, I have a brother and a sister. family." <laughs> and it wasn't until way later in life that I realized, like, that's not a lot of siblings. So, like, you know, like, uh, you know, my wife has two sisters and a brother, which I thought was a lot, too. But then her mom has, like, seven siblings. You know, it's all Catholic families. And so 
It's uh, my family's relatively, you know, relatively small. Not like only child small, but relatively small. A couple grandkids, couple nieces and nephews, you know. So, are you the middle child? Yes, I am. I oh. am. So, which probably defines my entire work. <laughs> it does. <laughs> it does frame it very nicely. All of a sudden, uh, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so they're, they're straight up. I mean, that's 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 the real shit, man. Middle child syndrome is the real shit. People don't believe that stuff. But the people who don't believe that stuff are not middle children. I'm like, if you like, my wife was the was the oldest of her siblings. I'm like, you just don't understand, man. You don't understand <laughs> what it's like to be in the middle and like, you know, your older brother gets all the uh, all the uh, kind of freedoms. And then, like, your younger sister, in my case, gets, uh, like, all, like, the spoils. You know what I mean? And you're just stuck in the middle getting shit. So, <laughs> at least that, that's how you feel when you're 15 years old and you discover the get of kids. That's pretty much how you feel. So so what do your brother and sister do then? Uh, my sister works in uh, Rockford, my hometown. She works uh, for a hospital doing daycare. And then my brother works in finance in uh, <laughs> Moscow. Uh, he works in Moscow, Russia. And he makes uh, money hand over fist, which is fine because he was a punk kid too. Like he was the dude who got me into punk. He was the dude who put on basement shows and house shows and would dumpster dive for computer parts and all that shit. So like he moved to Russia um, in about a decade or so ago, a little over a decade ago, and uh, just worked his way up there and now works for this like Russian financial company and does really well for himself. So it's good for him. That's that's crazy. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty rad, man. Like uh, Moscow is the fucking coolest place in the world. We've gotten to go there twice. And uh, I would I would drop everything to go back tomorrow. It is just the coolest, cool. Well, maybe not tomorrow. It's really cold, in Moscow, right now. <laughs> this is January, but uh, but uh, it's just like the raddest place, and the culture there is incredible. And there's such a cool, vibrant underground art scene that he kind of clues me into from time to time. And it's a uh, it's a really neat place. So, yeah, you mentioned this a second ago, but so is your brother like the guy that introduces you to like what becomes your life's kind of field of work I, I, yeah i mean yes and no like we both kind of discovered punk at the same time in 94 with green day and then <laughs> okay. like for, for me like what he did he went backward and he discovered like black flag minor threat like that kind of stuff dead candies and i went forward and i was like oh no effects bad religion no use for a name we kind of you know would exchange notes here and there mm-hmm. um but that's i mean he definitely was kind of like the impetus where he kind of got he, you know he was two years older so he got a little bit more involved than i could at that age he was 14 i was 12 so he had you know, he could go out and like he would start going to shows at a skate park nearby and that kind of stuff. And he would get me involved when my mom would make him take me along, like you know those kind of things. He took me to my first Warp tour. That was that was a big brother brother bonding moment. What so, year? What year was that? Ninety seven. Ninety seven. Yeah. Suicide Machines, Social Distortion, Less Than Jake, Limp Biscuit, Sugar Ray. It was uh, a pretty interesting year. I saw the singer of Sugar Ray get struck by a lightning bolt on stage. That really happened. <laughs> It was in Chicago and it rained all day long and uh, Sugar Ray were playing on like the side stage and there was no uh, roof on the side stage. It was this weird like camo stage with no roof covering at all and it was pouring down rain and fucking Mark McGrath had a goddamn headset mic on. He had a fucking headset mic on. I was like jumping around in the crowd and a lightning bolt came down and hit the fucking stage. No bullshit and he fucking went down like a sack of potatoes. So this is a true story. If you ever meet Mark McGrath, ask him about the time he was struck by lightning because I'm sure he will corroborate the story. It is a real story. So, And that was the last summer Sugar Ray played Warped Tour. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't come back since. They're still waiting for the insurance payout. So. <laughs> oh, that's, that's awesome that you shared that with your brother. Now, did, were your parents into music a lot? Like, Was that always a part of your household? Yeah, um, I feel like... My dad more than my mom, and that's a no slight to my mom. She likes stuff. She doesn't amuse me. I think her 
kind of musical interests kind of peaked and stopped once she got married, basically like in the mid seventies. And she was really into like a lot of softer stuff like bread or, uh, you know, like those kind of things like Andy Gibb, you know, mm-hmm. um, my dad was all about like the Beatles, the stones, the kinks. My dad saw the Rolling Stones with Brian Jones and fucking Milan, uh, <laughs> when, when he was a teenager, like in like, literally Milan, Italy, you know, it's fucking <laughs> crazy. Um, and so I feel like had my dad not met and then married my mom, he would may have turned into like a rocker dude, but he kind of, you know, let it fade out, I think, too. But every once in a while, I'll have like a band on in my car. I'll be like, oh, who is this? Oh, it's Free Energy. Oh, it's a pretty cool. Burn me the CD. So he's, he's pretty, pretty behind the curve, but he'll still go to Best Buy like once every couple of months and buy some greatest hits collection by The Who or something, you know. So, but yeah, we, we always had music growing up in the house. We always had like Beatles records on my parents' turntable. Um, I, I vividly remember the terrible selection of CDs we had. We had like multiple Michael Bolton records. Um, I mean, with plural, uh, we had God. Um, those are always mainstays in the house. Fucking every Sunday morning, hearing Michael Bolton. So <laughs> it, it makes it pretty easy to like branch off into something else when all your parents listen to is like Michael Bolton and like you know I, I don't even know what else they're listening to. That was the one that sticks out in my mind the most. So. <laughs> Oh, no, definitely. My parents used to listen to Michael Bolton. My mom actually was a Bread fan as well. I had to laugh oh. when you mentioned Bread. Yeah, that was, that, that was like one of the records that I remember digging through my mom's records in the basement. I was like, who the fuck is this band called Bread? What a terrible name. It is. So. It is. I, I remember that when I told my parents I was into like Simon and Garfunkel and stuff growing up, my mom was like, you should have my old Bread record. And I was, <laughs> I was like, I don't think that that's the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> No, but that's. I don't think there's a whole generation of kids who probably don't know what like what listening to Michael Bolton is like. That's okay. I think I think they'll be fine. <laughs> Actually, that's not true though. You know, these kids know Michael Bolton now because he was on that fucking Lonely Island song. Oh, you're the, right. The Jack the Jack Sparrow song. So that's like their only frame of reference for Michael Bolton is that funny old guy who did a video with Andy Samberg. That's so, strange. That's yeah. weird. Which, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now you mentioned '94 being like the year. That's when you you get into Green Day and stuff. But that's is that also when the Weezer love begins? Um, that came a little bit later, actually. Like I was aware of Weezer, um, probably pretty early on. I remember seeing the videos on MTV. It's, I mean, I watched MTV religiously when I was 12. You know, that was just everything I watched was MTV. Um, and uh, but I think I remember the first time I really thought about Weezer, like really like, well, I wonder what happened to that band. I remember that was right when Pinkerton came out. Like uh, and I had the blue album already. I think I had borrowed it from a friend or something like that. I bought the CD at a used store or something like that. And uh, I remember thinking, like, oh, what whatever happened to Weezer? Then the El Scorcho video came on on MTV like in '96. I was like, oh, that was a cool song, cool. And then I kind of forgot about that Weezer again. And then it wasn't until maybe a year or two later when I was uh, driving with a friend of mine. I guess it was two years later. We were driving to a show at a record store in DeKalb, Illinois. Uh, the record store was called Seven Dead Arson. This is the shit I remember, James. I, 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 couldn't, tell you, I couldn't tell you my dad's birthday, but I can remember the name of the defunct record store I went to in DeKalb, Illinois. But she played me Pinkerton. I'd never heard it before. And I was like, holy fuck, like, this is gnarly. You know, I'd never heard the record. And so it was kind of about that point, like 98, after the band had kind of already peaked commercially and then kind of gone into their dark period. That's when I was like, whoa, what's this all about? And I went head on into it and I've pretty much been, I would say, politely obsessed ever since. So, <laughs> It's funny. When you Google your name, Weezer is like the third result. <laughs> it's like Scott Heisel AP, Scott Heisel, Scott Heisel Weezer. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. That sounds about right. That, I mean, that's kind of an honor. I mean, there are worse bands to pop up next to your name yes. than Google. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Scott Heisel Broken Side, Scott Heisel Millionaires. Exactly. Yeah. Like the Heisel worst Heisel article Heisel. you ever wrote. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, that yeah, no, that always makes me laugh. I, I was like, ha- you have to write about a band a lot for it to be like that associated with who you yeah. are. I was the weasel guy, yeah. So <laughs> I'm okay with that, man. Like that's that band. You know, I'm I haven't I'm not ashamed to admit that I'm a fan of that band. I feel like the problem with most music journalism is that mu- writers are afraid to admit they like something, and they're afraid to admit that they're like and not like like something like you know critically, but like something where you turn that part of your brain off that just says fuck it, I love this. You know, and I feel like too many writers are trying to be too smart and are just afraid to actually be fans of music, you know, and you can still be a fan of something and lose your fucking mind at a show and sing along and, you know, whatever, and still be critical of their output, you know, because I feel like I've been pretty critical of Weezer over the years because I love them so much and I expect more. There's a lot of bands I, I treat like that, like like Motion City Soundtrack. I fucking love Motion City Soundtrack. I've loved them for a decade plus, but I'm very critical on their output because I expect them to be better than most other bands. You know, um, so I feel like that's a big problem with, with, with writers in general is that everyone wants to be like, you know, writing from a distance and, and heaping critical praise on, I don't know, the national or fucking whatever people like this year. Um, when the stuff they actually like, the stuff that, that actually like makes them jump out of their seats, they're too afraid to admit because everyone wants to be cool, you know? Yeah, no, I completely admit. And I think that that's a lot of the reason that especially like we're in like the middle of year end list right now. And I'm so tired of seeing like the same three albums at the top of everyone's list. And I'm like, really? Yeah. We all listen to the same three albums all year long. That's it. That's all it we've done. This is, this is the first year I was ever asked to take part in the uh, the Village Voice Paz and Jot poll, which I, they haven't posted the results yet. Maybe they will by the time you run this podcast. But uh, I was so honored. I was like, wow, I've never gotten to do this before. It's nice. That it's taken me, you know, 14, 15 years of writing, but they're inviting me to be like a professional critic for this thing. And I, I filled my ballot out and I'm like, no one's going to pick any of the records. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm picking like Beartooth, you know, and like This Wildlife. And I'm like, these records are fucking awesome. And there's not a shot in hell that any of those records get any other votes besides anyone but me. <laughs> but, uh, it's, but, it's, but I was like, all right, that's what it is. Like if everyone wants to go fucking vote for, I don't even know, what was the big thing this year? I don't even know. Everyone was freaking out about what, Death Grips? I have no idea. What was the big record this year? I guess. Jack White, I guess. Yeah, Jack White. If you want to be like a, a cool hip kid, The Hotel Year, I guess, is your breakout band of the year. I I do. What I like the hotel year when they were still called the hotel year. So I don't know what that means. Yeah. But uh, I mean, that's a fine one. Like, that record fucking rules too. Like I can't get enough of that record either. Oh yeah. Um, but uh, I'm trying to think of what the big like India. I don't even know what like what did Pitchfork say was the number one album of the year. I didn't even look. I don't even think so. I've looked because I, I try not to. I, yeah, for Pitchfork definitely. <laughs> it's, it's just weird because I read these year end lists on like sites that I respect. Like I love like AV Club for example. I love AV Club. I know a lot of people who have, who work there or have worked there. They're good people. They're you know great journalistic integrity for the most part. Like I respect them, but I read their year end list. I'm like, what the fuck records are these? I haven't heard, I haven't even heard of most of the records, let alone heard them. And I'm like, am I that out of touch, or is this because I have focused so much on youth culture, which is totally different than like critic culture? You know, like I feel like my tastes are best aligned and slightly molded by what like a 19 year old listens to because that was my job for the past decade was how do I make sure I'm getting the best of what that reader wants. So, you know, I see something like that where I'm like, what the fuck records are these? You know, like how did everyone find these random ass like French noise jazz prog records? I'm like what the fuck? It makes yeah. me feel so clueless because all I'm doing is just listening to the stuff I want to listen to, you know? And if it's, if it's a ska band or a fucking whatever, but who cares, you know? So, <laughs> Pitchfork chose Run the Jewels, by the way. I, I have so many lists. I've seen that on there. And I, I've got the point now where I was like, I should listen to that record because I'm, <laughs> I'm woefully ignorant on hip-hop. Woefully ignorant. <laughs> that's, that's certainly the area where I proclaim no expertise whatsoever. Um, but I've, I've had a lot of friends say, like, this record rules. So 
I, I want to actually go check it out. It was funny, actually, over the holidays, um, my wife bought me the mineral reissues on vinyl from Amazon. She bought me, you know, Power Failing and End Serenading, and they're both these double LP, expanded packaging, liner notes, blah, blah, blah. And um, I kind of pretty much told her, like, straight up, go buy these for me. I want these for Christmas. And she bought them, and so I kind of knew she'd bought them, you know. Yeah. And they, they came to her parents' house. They're both an individual Amazon mailers. Um, and so she didn't even have time. They showed up, like, Christmas Eve. So she just wrapped them up, like, in their mailers. Didn't even open them. I'm like, all right. <laughs> so Christmas Day comes, and I open the first one. I'm like, oh, it's the power of failing. Awesome. Thank you. Like, you know, I rip open the thing. That's what comes out. And so I pick up the next one. I'm like, I better know what this one is. And I unwrap it, and I rip the tab, and it's a fucking Freddie Gibbs and Mad Lib record, which is, like, <laughs> super hardcore, like, West Coast rap. Not anything I would ever listen to, and I just start dying laughing. Like here I am trying to buy like an emo reissue, and I, I get like the most hardcore gangster rap album of the year. And I was like, well, that's that's pretty much pretty much explains my taste in a nutshell. Was uh, you know, all, all I wanted was the emo reunion. So, <laughs> but that Mad Lib album is good though. I mean, it's well, worth a spin. Well, the bummer is I can't keep it. Like we, we actually like she hit up Amazon. They're like, oh, just send us it back and we'll send you the replacement. I'm like, damn, I want to actually keep it. So, unfortunately, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. I think you'll be all right without it. All right. <laughs> uh, you know, I do want to ask you. We haven't really touched on this, but so when does writing come into the picture for young Scott? Like, is there like a day or a person or something that kind of like opens your mind to this whole idea of music writing? It was really early on after discovering like punk and indie and stuff like that was my brother started a zine. Um, he was in high school and I want to say, I don't, well actually, I, well, I can go back even before that. God, when I was in like sixth grade, so I probably was 12 years old, so I, I was obsessed, fucking obsessed with the Weekly World News, which was that tabloid, like the black and white one that was just all bullshit made up stories. Like Elvis is still alive. Hitler found in Argentina, a giant dinosaur. Like it's just made up shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I was obsessed with that thing. I would buy them at the grocery store all the time. It was like 85 cents or whatever. And um, I had some friends of mine and I who were obsessed with it too. And so we made like a fake, like like a knockoff version of that, like for our grade school when I was like in sixth grade. And we would write like ridiculous made up stories. But then in, in those issues, this is maybe like sixth or seventh grade. We would also, I would write record reviews. And I, remember, I remember I reviewed a Toad the Wet Sprocket album, which, okay. Um, I can't remember what else. But so that was probably the start, the very start of me like trying to express myself. And then, you know, then came punk and I was like, holy shit. And my brother started this zine called Rockford Sucks, which is a really <laughs> great name for a zine when you're living in Rockford, Illinois. And uh, he let me write reviews for it. And uh, I wrote a column for it. And then he later changed the name to a different kind of greatness which was our hometown slogan at the time, uh, and then did a couple more issues. Then he went to college and moved it to online. It's actually still online. It's at adkg.com. He has it all archived. It hasn't been updated in 10, 12 years. It is the absolute worst writing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> uh, it's, just, it's horrendously bad writing, you know what I mean? Because I had no editor. I didn't know what I was doing. I was 15 years old or 16 years old writing little like capsule reviews being like, this is the new Braid album. It's awesome. You should go buy it. Emo. Like that's literally what a review said. It was like an all caps emo. So it was a different time in '98, James. It was a much different time. <laughs> yeah, that was that was certainly the start. And then I kind of from there fell into punk news, and then that was a big thing for me too. So <laughs> I understand. I remember those weird world news, the Weekly World News, because of Bat Boy. Yo, yeah, that was a big one. Bat Boy was a huge one. You know, Bat- they made T-shirts for that Bat Boy and stuff. Yeah. So. Like, they weren't all, they weren't all as good as Bat Boy, unfortunately. But they were always great stories. I remember one story was about like 
a guy built a suit to smell his own farts. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds like something I would do at 12 years old. All right. So it was a good idea. Uh, so is Augustana College also in Illinois? I think you mentioned that earlier. Yes, it's in the Quad Cities. It's, it's in Rock Island, Illinois, which is right on the east side of the Mississippi River. And so there's, there's four cities together. There's Moline and Rock Island, and then right across the river you have Davenport and Bettendorf, Iowa. Um, and so, yeah, that's where, like I said, that's where Day Trotter is based out of. Mm-hmm. Um, that started like pretty much right when I left, when I graduated college. That's like when Day Trotter was getting started. Um, there's not much else out there um, in terms of a scene. There were some pretty cool local bands and uh, a couple, like, kind of, there was never like a, like a, a consistent venue out there, at least when I was in college. Um, and also, whenever there would be shows, it was always, you were always kind of frowned upon if you weren't like a, like a townie to go to shows. Mm-hmm. Like, we would go to shows because we wanted to go see bands. And like I remember seeing like the Blood Brothers in a coffee shop and like all those. I, I booked a couple of shows out there too. I booked brand new out there once and like six kids showed up because it was this weird like resentment from the kids who lived in that city versus the college kids. So like if a college kid would book a show, they would counter book a show the same night like to draw everyone away. Like when I booked brand new, it was um, their first tour in support of Your Favorite Weapon. It was brand new in the reunion show and a couple other bands I booked. And like literally seven kids showed, six kids showed up because they had booked some other show right across town because that's just how they did it where it's like, oh, you're going to do a show? Well, you're not one of us, so we'll do a show instead. You know, it was just – it was always really weird. There was like a message board for that area that was like a real like a very – what do you say? Like immature message board, you know, like Mm -hmm. lots of tearing down unfortunately. And all we wanted to do was just see bands. So Why why did you go to this school in the first place? They gave me money. (laughs) Oh, I mean, it's uh, uh, that's I don't know. Like, I had applied for a, a couple, like maybe three or four. I had applied for three colleges, and I got into all three of them. They were all in Illinois. Um, I hadn't really thought about leaving Illinois, and um, like I had like my safety school, and then I was like, well, I don't need that one. And the other two I applied for, I got into both, and they both offered me like a scholarship. One offered me a um, Augustana offered me a scholarship for uh, vocal performance because I, I I was a singer. I, I was in choir and all that stuff, and so they were actually offering me money to come there and sing. And then uh, the other school I applied for and got into, they were offering me a much bigger scholarship strictly on my ACT score because I, I, was, I was a really good test taker. Like I'm not, I, I'm not a good student, but I'm a really good test taker. And so I was like, well, this school is offering me a little bit of money to do like music, but this school is offering me a lot of money because they think I'm smart and I'm not smart. So that's pretty much what drove me to Augustana was like, I don't want to go to a school that's going to pay me too much because I knew like it wasn't going to pan out. Like I knew if I would have gone to that school, I probably would have lost that scholarship in the first year I went there because I would have terrible grades or whatever. So I was like, you know what? You know, my parents will be pissed off, but I'm just going to go to this school and they'll have to help me out. But uh, so I was like, yeah, so I, you know, I got a, you know got a couple grand a year to go to Augustana, but I got to perform. Like I got to sing in choir and I was in jazz and all that kind of stuff. And that that's what was I was excited about that. So it gave me an outlet to perform with a really high level uh, group. So. Do you per, do you study writing? No, we didn't have journalism at my my college, which is a bummer. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, exactly. So yeah, you know, it worked out, I guess. <laughs> so what, um, so what did you get a degree in? Uh, my degree was in speech communication, which was kind of a, a backdoor degree because I had dicked around for two years trying to start the education program, like to be either a music educator or an elementary educator, and just wasn't really finding my foothold in either one of those. And so at like the end of my sophomore year. My, my advisor's like, listen, you need to pick something because you're kind of fucked. And so I was like, well, what can I do in two years? And they're like, here, speech comm. I'm like, all right, cool. Because I, you know, I like public speaking. I mean, I, I'd already taken some speech classes anyway because I like that stuff. And it's funny because 
most people hate public speaking, but I love talking in general, which you probably already figured out. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I talk all the time. So <laughs> for me, it was like a natural fit, and I really enjoyed like those last two years because I got to do something I felt like I was good at. Whereas like the first two years, I just wasn't fitting in their programs and wasn't really sure what I should do or where I should go. So yeah, I got speech comm degree and uh, literally interviewed for one job, and that and that's the one I got. So it was a pretty pretty serendipitous uh, couple years, I think, because between that I was doing punk news. So like punk news is what I did in college. Like I mean, I went to classes too, but like I pretty much from two thousand one to two thousand four, which was like my sophomore, junior, and senior years of college, I just did punk news like every day, day and night. So uh, that's what really got me ended up getting me a job was you know, the exposure I got from that website. You have to tell us what blogging was like 15 years ago. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, got, we, got threatened, we got threatened uh, to be sued by DriveThru Records. Awesome. That was fun. Um, you know, it's funny. I was actually just kind of going through the other day. I was going through all my old year-end lists that I've been writing since I was like 16 years old. Like <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote, you know, when I was fucking 1998. I was like, this is my favorite record of the year. So I was looking at all my old like punk news year-end lists. And uh, I used to write like little like intro blurbs or whatever and talk about the news and that kind of stuff. And some of the shit I talked about, I'm like, holy crap, I, for I forgot all about like some of the beefs that happened on punk news. And like, but yeah, the biggest one was that Drive Through Records threatened to sue us because we had posted th this is when Midtown put out their second album, okay. uh, uh, which is what? Uh, Living Well is the Best Event. Yes. And Gabe supported at some interview, I can't remember with what publication or some blog or whatever, some website, and just shit-talked drive-through, just dumped all over me because they were on MCA at the time. And we posted a story about that interview, like shit-talking drive-through, didn't editorialize, just posted the story. And then in the comments, people went crazy because at that time, it was all anonymous commenting. So people went fucking crazy and just totally ran rampant all over drive-through and Rich, or, you know, Richard and Stephanie Rains and said a lot of pretty inflammatory things. <laughs> and uh, we get a, an email from like a lawyer who says they represent drive through that they're going to sue us unless we, in the following order, delete the story, or I'm sorry, no, delete the offending comments, then turn over the IP addresses of the offending comments to the lawyer. So Aubin, the guy who owns Punk News, was like, okay, I'll do these things. Step one, delete the comments, done. Step two, oh, I can't give you their IP address anymore. I deleted the comments already, sorry. And that's what happened. So, that, <laughs> so and then like we had this big discussion between me and him and Adam White, uh, the, uh, the third editor at the time, about what we should do. And I was like, fuck them, blackball the whole like, label, fuck them all. You know, it's it's terrible, terrible business. And the the the, uh, the compromise we came to is that we would still cover the bands on drive-through because the bands didn't do anything. But we wouldn't use the drive through Records logo anymore, which is so like stupid and petty to be like, well, this is what we're going to do. It's our moral stance. But uh, yeah, that was that's what it was like back then. That was the wild fucking West. You could just threaten to sue somebody because you said something <laughs> about it, you know? That's, that seems like that's so strange. Foreign. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it's honestly, it's like it's it's very interesting to see where things have gone in the past decade or so from that time period because it doesn't, it doesn't feel like there's that much time has passed. But at the same time, like, so many things have changed in terms of how people communicate information and like the the amount of work that goes into like even putting a news story up online on any website like it's crazy to me to see what actually kind of goes through like the process now because um, it was a pretty uh, pretty different time for sure like it's 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 I have lots of fond memories of just working till all hours of the night you know putting up news and researching stuff and reviews and like I mean one of the craziest stories from when I was doing punk news was. I was 
this always sounds like I'm bragging, which is ne- this is never meant to be a brag. But I was one of the first, if not the first person, to break the news of Ed- Elliot Smith dying um, because I had a friend of mine who was a manager of a band who was she was a co-manager of a band, and the other co-manager also worked for Golden Voice. And Golden Voice had a lot of connections to Elliot Smith's camp, and I guess like they were working on sh- setting up some shows with them or something like that. And then he, you know, he stabbed himself and then killed himself, and like word spread through that little group, and I got tipped off to it. So like at I don't know three or four in the morning, like the day after it happened, before the news had gotten out, I had gotten like a confirmed source, like hey, this happened. So I posted up a story, and it was so crazy because I used to get up every day at four in the morning to go to work. I, I was working at a, a commercial radio station. Um, before I would go to school, I would work on their morning show. I was like a production assistant. And so I got up at like four in the morning. I had gotten confirmation overnight for this Elliot Smith story and like wrote up kind of an obit and then published it. And then like, you know, I went to work at this radio station and came back to go to school like four hours later. And that's when it got picked up everywhere. And it was like MTV was reporting it, you know, everything, Rolling Stone. I was like, man, that was crazy. Like that was one of those days where, you know, it's not a fun thing to be like, oh, we were first on this because you don't want to be first on someone's death. But that was how things spread back then. Like there was a lot of a lot of uh, rumor spreading and like, you know, being tipped off to stuff via instant message. Like that was the big, the big thing uh, in the early 2000s for us at least was just like I would have my instant messenger on 24-7 and get random IMs from random people who would just give me news tips towards stuff. Like this man's breaking up. This man's doing this. And I would just go research it and find out if it was true or not. And uh, I feel like that's a much different way then than it is now for people to kind of get their their rumors and their news. But back then, like fucking instant messenger killed it. <laughs> that was <laughs> that was by far the uh, the quickest way to like you know spread you know news tidbits and stuff. So no, I, I completely agree. I talk about AIM all the time. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I, I, haven't, I haven't signed on to instant messenger. I, mean, I use like Google Chat, but like I haven't signed on to like AIM in years, years and years and years. I wouldn't even know what to do anymore on it. Like. But that's what I used to do when I first started AP too. I would be on AIM all day long getting like news tidbits and stuff for the website. But then eventually kind of just dried up because people kind of age out of it, I guess. And they get real jobs and they can't be on Instant Messenger all day. So I guess. Plus it was like it was weird because people would have like screen names back in AOL days. It wasn't just talking to Scott and James. It would be like cool James XI and whatever your name was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I never had any like weird ones. I uh I only ever had two screen names. And my first one was just like S. Heisel, which was I was like 14 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then the one I used for the longest time was so stupid. It was Toco 2000, which, <laughs> which means nothing. Like 2000 was the year I graduated high school. But Toco, the only reason I picked that word was because I was on a Boy Scout camping trip when I was like 16. And uh, it was a ski trip. And uh, one of the like adults that was on the trip with us had like this beat up package of ski wax that was like decades old. And, you know, you just took this bar of wax out and started weaponizing this thing. And the box was, said Toco on it. And, like that was the name of the brand of ski wax from like the 70s or whatever from Sweden. And so we thought that was the funniest word. And so everyone in our little Boy Scout troop agreed to make our screen names Toco something after that weekend. And nobody did it but me. So, <laughs> so I, I rode that one out for years. I rode it out for years. So. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Now you mentioned uh, you mentioned that you only had one job interview, and that ends up being Alternative Press. So I'm curious, like, so do you make a connection with Alternative Press through Punk News first, and then the job kind of comes up to you, or do you just blindly apply? Uh, well, we had, if, if I remember correctly, it was 2003, and end, end of 2003, I got an email from Aaron Burgess, who used to be the editorial director at AP, yeah. and he was he was fucking awesome. That dude was brilliant. Um, 
And he had emailed me being like, hey, can we get a logo for Punk News because you guys won some of the awards in our year-end readers poll. Like, we won like best forum, best website, something like that. And I was like, oh, that's rad. So we sent him the logo and he like sends me a copy of like the issue that it was in after the fact as like a thank you. I was like, oh, that's really cool. And I, I had known of AP for a couple of years at that point. I wasn't actually really reading it that much. I had a couple issues here and there. Um, and then I was getting ready to – it was like the spring of my senior year. And I was like, man, I should start looking for a job. And so I kind of just thought of like whatever music publications that are out there and started going to their websites and seeing if they had openings. And lo and behold, AP had on a very ancient version of altpress.com, they had a listing for a copy editor. And I'm like, I could probably do this. And so I, uh, I sent an application and I heard back – relatively quickly if i recall um because aaron burgess one we already communicated and two you know he just knew my work on punk news he knew i had connections already knew i knew the scene and so we set up a phone call in i want to say may i think like early either late april or early may i thought i had a pretty good phone call phone interview and then i had to take a little copy editing test which i totally cheated on <laughs> i had my <laughs> My, my friend Rachel, who uh, later ended up working with me at AP, she totally helped me with it because I didn't know copy editing at all. Like I didn't know the skill set at all. So I was kind of just bullshitting my way into it. And uh, that went well enough where they brought me in for an in-person interview in June. Like I want to say it was like first or second week of June. I drove out to Cleveland, um, had an interview with, with uh, Mike Shea, and, uh, who's the owner, and Norman Wonderly, who was the publisher at the time. And uh, I think the editorial staff was in the meeting too, like the entire editorial staff. And uh, we went out to lunch together. It seemed like it was pretty cool. They said, well, all right, we'll, we'll let you know soon. I drove back home. Like two weeks go by. And I'm thinking, ah, fuck, I didn't get this job. And I remember like waiting by the phone because I looked at an apartment when I was in Cleveland too. And I loved the apartment. I looked at it. It was cheap and it was a cool place in town. And I was like, all right, I can live here. So I asked the guy to hold it for me. He's like, well, okay, I'll do what I can. So like he keeps calling me like, hey, like, if you want this apartment, you have to send me a deposit. Otherwise, I'll give it to somebody else. And I'm like, just give me one more day. Give me one more day. They'll call me. And then, like, I remember I drove out from Rockford to Iowa City, Iowa, um, which is, like, three hours. Um, And I went there because Braid – it was the Braid reunion tour in 2004. It was Braid minus the Baron Murder by Death. And I'd already seen that tour, like, five or six times already because I love Braid. And I was like, you know what, fuck it, I'm just going to drive out to Iowa City with some friends and go to the show and, you know, who cares? Who cares about this job, you know? So while I'm in Iowa City, we're out to eat at some, like, Indian restaurant, and my phone rings. It's a it's a uh, Ohio area code. I'm like, oh, shit, here it is. And it was the landlord being like, you got <laughs> you, you to, like, pay me some money for this apartment if you want it. I'm like, oh, give me one more day. So then I, I drive – because they told me they would call me and they never called me, the AP. So then I drive home that night after the show, get home at, like, 3.30 in the morning – to my parents' house, go upstairs in my bedroom, turn my computer on, open my email, and write. And keep in mind, this is before smartphones. Nobody had email on their phone, okay? So I get home at 3.30 in the morning, and there's an email sitting there from like six hours ago from Mike Shea saying they want to hire me. And I was like, holy shit! And I ran, it's, again, it's 3.34 in the morning. I run out of my room, kick open the door to my parents' room, turn on their light. I'm like, I got a job! And I start screaming in the house. And my mom sits bolt up like I broke into their house or something. So that's what uh, that's what happened there. But uh, that that was like yeah, end of end of June, and then I moved out of my parents' house on the. Fr- I moved into Cleveland. I moved to Cleveland on the first of July. So I was really unemployed after graduation for like four weeks, four or five weeks. And that was it. And then I moved on the first of July and started two weeks later. So and that was that that brings us to present day. Basically, that was ten and a half years ago. So. <laughs> 
Now, I've never heard somebody tell a story where they were excited to move to Cleveland, Ohio until just now. <laughs> I mean, I was like, I had no predisposed notion of Cleveland. Like, after I moved here, I learned people like, oh, God, Cleveland? I'm like, I don't, I, I had no you know, frame of reference. And coming from Rockford, which is much smaller than Cleveland, Cleveland was like the big city, you know? <laughs> and there was, there was nightlife and there were shows all the time and there were cool restaurants and there were people. And I didn't, ha- I didn't feel like I belonged at all in Rockford or even in the Quad Cities where I went to college. But in Cleveland, I, f- I found friends relatively quickly. And so I felt comfortable, you know, and I felt like it was a place that I could kind of, you know, grow up in. It was, I felt like I could be an adult there. I could go out to, I got to know people th- at the clubs I went to and that kind of stuff and made good friends. And, um, and so that's why, you know, I, I loved Cleveland. I've, I still love Cleveland. I've been here, like I said, for <laughs> 10 and a half years. And, you know, my wife moved here four years ago to live with me and we got married two years ago. And, or almost yeah, two and a half years ago, and it's just like it's a great place. It's awesome. I think it gets a really bad rap from a lot of people who have never been here, which is that's. I mean, that's how anything is. You know, people want to shit talk stuff they don't know anything about. That's just how that's that's that sums up my life. Is people shit talk things <laughs> they know nothing about, and I have to defend <laughs> it. So that's pretty much been my adult life at this point. I think it. I think the Cleveland hate thing is so weird because I don't understand. Like a lot of times, like a place like Detroit, I'm like, okay, I get it. Like I get where the hate comes from. But like Cleveland has only ever given us like the Drew Carey show, <laughs> some sports teams, and hot in Cleveland, and that's about like. I don't know where you find all the all the anger comes from. There's a lot of I will say uh, it's a lot of the anger is is Cleveland versus Pittsburgh. Like okay. Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh hates Cleveland and vice versa. Like. The two of our cities can't fucking stand each other for whatever reason. And uh, the bigger problem, I think, is that, like, Pittsburgh has de- – has, we, we both hit the recession pretty hard. Like, Cleveland's a blue-collar town. You know, most of most of the Midwest is. And we uh, we hit the recession pretty damn hard. And so did Pittsburgh, but Pittsburgh came out of it faster. And so they're, like, kind of getting more revitalized. And, you know, they have an Ikea, you know, that kind of stuff. Whereas we're just sitting here, in the, you know, on, on Lake Erie. You know, our river catches fire every once in a while, you know. So there's a lot of like weird like kind of uh, loser thing. I, I think part of the thing that people think about Cleveland is like, oh, Cleveland's such a loser. They lost their football team, you know, because that's what happened with the Browns back in the '90s. That they yeah. the football team was moved overnight, in the middle, literally in the middle of the night, to Baltimore, and and they didn't get one for four years. And then once that one came back, the new Browns have been terrible. So people <laughs> kind of associate the city with just losers, you know. And then the fact that LeBron couldn't get it done when he was here, and he had to leave to get it done. It's just like, man. But thing, I mean, this year has been awesome for Cleveland. I think it's been, you know, it, for, from a sports perspective, it's been exciting. Or just like kind of a, a citywide like enthusiasm toward things. It seems like there's a lot more interest in the city from the people who live here than there has been in a long time. I don't. For me, I definitely care more about Cleveland this year than I have in other years. Um, so yeah, I love living here. I love being a part of it because it's a it's a cool city. It's cheap as hell. Uh, very very cheap to live here, um, you know. I, I you know I whenever I talk to my friends who live in New York or whatever, and I ask them what they're paying for rent, it's like three times my mortgage. I mean, it's literally <laughs> it's, it's insane to me. And I'm like, I own a house. Like, it's not a huge house, but it's a house, you know. And you and you live above a Chinese restaurant in Brooklyn. And why? What's the point? You know, like, what do you get out of that? Just because you're in a big city? Well, you're not going to have any money in a big city. You're going to be screwed. Yeah. So that that's my perspective on it. Where it's like Cleveland gives me everything I like in life to have a good time. Mm-hmm. And I can also still have a couple bucks in my pocket afterwards. So that's what I like about it. 
That's good. I, I was in Cleveland over the summer to visit a friend in the hospital. It was actually the day that LeBron James announced his return. And it was like, it was the strangest thing. This has never happened to me, but two separate times while I was out in the city during the day, strangers just approached me to congratulate me on the fact that LeBron James had decided to come back to Cleveland. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was in the car at a stop sign with my window rolled down and this guy on the street goes, hey, young blood, the king's coming home. <laughs> Dude, it was a big deal. That was a very exciting day. Like... I remember I was trying to listen. I, I, I'm. It's so funny. Like you know, when you do music for a living for so long, at some point you just like that's enough. You know what I mean? You have to kind of detach yourself from music. So a couple of years ago, I think it was maybe like two years ago, I got really into sports talk radio, which is like the worst thing to get into, but I love it. I just there's a, there's a sports talk radio station in Cleveland that I love, and uh, I you know I'm not the kind of guy who calls in or anything, but I'll just listen. And so when the LeBron stuff was building, and you're like, holy shit, this might be happening. The rumors started churning. Those days on radio were so exciting to listen to. And I would like purposely take my lunch break to like catch guys on the radio talking about it and like sit in my car for an hour and like hear them talking about it and then go back to work. But the day it gets announced, I think I was in a meeting or something. And then all of a sudden my phone dings and it's my wife, my wife Aubrey texts me. She's like, LeBron's coming back. I'm like, holy <laughs> shit. And of course at AP, nobody at AP gives a fuck about sports. <laughs> like like our, our art director, Chris Benton, is huge into the Indians, loves the Indians. But like in terms of anything else, nobody in AP really cares about sports whatsoever. So I'm like, you guys, this is huge, blah, blah, blah. And everyone's like, well, what's the big deal? I'm like, what's the big deal? Like <laughs> regardless of whether or not you care about sports, like the economic boost that LeBron is giving the city by coming back is insane. Like that's, and that's what I guess. Like this is how you know you're an adult when you're in your 30s when you're like, <laughs> wow, the taxes we'll get from this are great. You know, like, like they, you know, they, they just announced like the, like the, uh, What's it? The Republican National Convention's coming to Cleveland. And, like, I don't give a fuck about Republicans. I think Republicans are blowhards. But I will happily accept their money. Like, they yeah. can come to my city and they can spend their dollars here and they can go to the strip clubs or whatever and they can pay their taxes in my city and then I'll get better roads and I'll get better police and I'll get better fire. So I'm totally fine with that. You know, that's how I, that's how I judge things now is how do I benefit from these terrible things. But, uh, but yeah, LeBron was a big deal, man. Like, this city's been on cloud nine ever since <laughs> – that happened, and if they can somehow manage to win a title this year, I mean, I think they will eventually, but if they can do it this year, watch the fuck out. It's going to be like the new millennium, you know, party of the century, whatever, in Cleveland. It'll, it'll be insane. Like, it'll be, you know, fathers kissing their sons, you know, sons <laughs> hugging their dog. You know, it's, it'll be crazy. So... I don't doubt it. I mean, just the news alone had like 30 people just in the street outside of his old home with like jerseys yeah. in the sky. Like, he's home. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty rad. It's pretty rad. Um, I, I got to ask you this. I got like we blew way past this in your timeline, but I found it so damn interesting that I wanted to bring it up. Like, how did you get involved with the Microsoft Zune? Oh, that was just a thing. That was a couple years ago. Um, uh, there's a publicist who I work with a lot who... Uh, was brought on. They were like, they contacted her and brought her on like as a consultant for something. And then they told her that they were looking for like editorial types to kind of just get involved and help make playlists and that kind of stuff. And she thought of me because you know she thought I was talented, which is pretty rad. <laughs> and so she just hit me up and said, "Hey, talk to this guy." And I talked to him. And it was only for about a little over a year where I worked for him. And what I did was I would they would have like their editorial in house in Seattle, and they would say, "Okay, we want." to have playlist on the following 10 things this week or whatever it is, whatever was happening in current events, whatever was happening in music, you know, genres. 
and they would just say, here, make this playlist. And that's all it was. It was just like, here's the topic, make us a playlist. <laughs> I, and I love that. That's that's like the ultimate game for me is like, oh, you want 10 songs that best fit, you know, 80s French new wave? Okay, sure, or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I loved it, you know? And it was like, it was for me, it was really easy work because I was just like, that's what I was born to do is make playlists. <laughs> um, but, but unfortunately, as we all know, Zune didn't really work out. Uh, Zoom, uh, Zoom was closed about a year after I got brought on, and so uh, you know that was that, that wasn't like a full time job. That was something I was kind of just doing yeah. from home. You know? But I, I loved doing it when I lasted. The people I got to work with there were cool. Um, it was exciting to work for, like you know, to. Oh, the coolest thing we did was this was crazy. We like they partnered up with like United Airlines, and we got to make the in-flight playlist, and that was like. I've always wondered when you're on a flight, like, who does this? And I got to do it. Like, for a few months, I got to actually make, like, these three-hour-long playlists of music for people who are flying, you know, internationally and United. I'm like, so if somebody got to hear my mix, you know, in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, that's crazy to me. It's it's one of those weird things where you're like, well, I never thought I'd get to do this in my life, but I just did. That's pretty rad. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of how I saw the I saw the footnote on your LinkedIn page that you had done yeah. it because I you know had to troll all of your pages. Of course, as and, you do, and you know research, and I was just <laughs> like, I was like, Zune. <laughs> just it was just so random. I was like, okay, okay. Yeah. That's a fun side note. I like that a lot. And I want to get I want to get to youth conspiracy because I feel like that's a big chunk of you and what you do now. But I feel like we gotta like still we gotta like push through the end of blogging. So you are done with AP now. You've been done for like three weeks. How does it feel to not wake up and look at every press release in your inbox? <laughs> you have you have no idea. It's like <laughs> well, first off, I still get press like, like that's the thing. I, I sent an email out like, hey, I'm I'm no longer here. Here's my personal email address, you know. And so a mm-hmm. bunch of people reached out like, oh, good luck on your new thing, blah blah, blah whatever. But then you have the publicists who don't reach out and don't say, like, good luck or whatever, but just add your new email to their press list. I'm like, you fucking assholes. Like, <laughs> like, that's fine. Like, at least ask me first, you know. So I'm still getting press releases for things I do not care about, but a lot less. I mean, my, you know, the difference between my inbox when I was at AP versus now that I'm not at AP anymore is probably 3,000 emails a day versus, like, 30 emails a day. You know, it's, it's a, a huge drop-off, which is very nice for me. Because that was a huge chunk of my day at AP, which is deleting email, was getting through all this nonsense. And uh, it's pretty nice to not have to worry about that right now. I mean, maybe I will in the future. There's a lot of things that are kind of up in the air right now. But um, as of right now, it's a pretty perfect time after having the holidays to just be like, you know what? I'm good. Like, I'm just, I'm just cruising right now. You know, I'm, I'm very happy uh, to be uh, an independent uh, person again and not be tied to one, to one organization. It's very nice. Yeah, and I mean, it's worth mentioning that, like, like the Zoom thing, like you've constantly done other stuff over the last fourteen years. Like you haven't just been at AP. Oh, ten years. You haven't just been at AP this whole time. I mean, that was my. I mean, AP was my meal ticket. You know, what I mean, yeah. I, I worked my ass off at AP for ten years, and I am very appreciative of what they did for me. And it was very much like a thing, you know. But I always had other things on the side that, well, even whether it was just like you know writing a bio for somebody or whatever, like you know, that was never like my main gig. But that's kind of how you just kind of keep scratching your itch, you know, because there, there are months where there's not much to write for AP, where we're doing a big photo special, or there were months where, you know, if I wasn't doing a cover story, I'd have more free time in my hands, so I'd find something else to kind of pick up on the side. Um, and yeah, then my record label too, I started that, my, my record label kind of started actually out of the Zune, out of doing Zune, because uh, I'll tell you that Zune, Microsoft paid way too much money for me, I'll just say that, <laughs> like, like and, and it wasn't even that much, but it was way too much for the work I was doing. And so I, I had like this influx of money at like, you know, age 26, age 27. I'm like, I should do something. I should start a label. 
And so that's what started the label, uh, and then I kept rolling from there. And then, of course, once Zoom closed, I'm like, oh, fuck, there goes that income. <laughs> so that was a bummer. But, um, but yeah, so Youth Conspiracy has been kind of like my, uh, my kind of passion project, really, for about the past five years, really. Our, our first release, we were, were, technically, we were created in December of 2009. Our first release came out in January of 2010. So it'll be f- five years since our first release in like a week and a half, basically. So, <laughs> which is crazy. So, so what was the first release then? We did uh, the Felix Culpa. We did a, uh, they were putting out, like, I've known those dudes for a long time. Um, my old band used to play shows with them. Uh, I went to high school with their bass player. Like I have a lot of history with that band. And when they put out their first record way back in 2004, I loved it. I wrote about it in AP a ton. Like there were like seven or eight issues in a row where I somehow worked in the Felix Culpa. I just loved them. And uh, then they they added a guitar player, and they kind of took their sweet time making the new record because, like, their singer has three kids, and, you know, they're busy people, you know? And so they finally had this new record done, and they were just going to self-release it, and they sent it to me. And I was like, you guys, this is amazing. Like, it's really, really amazing. And I started kind of thinking in my head, like, there was just uh, – there's a pressing plant called Gotta Groove Records, uh, which opened in Cleveland in uh, mid-2009, and it's the newest pressing plant in America. And what they happened, they had – bought a bunch of old equipment from a defunct place and kind of set their own thing up. And I had saw that and I was like, man, I want to get involved. I want to do something. Like I want to, I want to spend money locally and create a product I'm proud of and do something cool. And so I'd had it in the back of my head, like I want to work with this rec- this pressing plant in Cleveland. And I already, I've, I had the name Youth Conspiracy since I was in college. I'd always had that name for a record label for a decade. And um, when the cult would let me hear their album, I was like, you guys, this is amazing. And I was like, if you would like me, I would love to put it on a vinyl. And they're like, of course, we don't have the money to do that. So, so you know, I called the pressing plant and got a, got a hold of them. We figured it out. And I think I was like their 10th or 11th order, something like that, which is crazy. Because now they've done like 15,000 orders or some insane number of orders. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we did that record. And I remember I was in my, my now wife, then girlfriend's apartment in Chicago, uh, right before I went home for Christmas, calling the singer from the Culpa and like kind of pacing around her little bedroom like kind of negotiate, like figure out what we were gonna do, and you know all that kind of stuff, and if everyone would be happy with stuff, and it worked. Everything happened so fast that they were they already had an album release show for like January twentieth or January twenty first. So we had we had a month, all right, mm-hmm. and we got the records done. Like we we got the records done not only in a month but over the holidays when everyone vanishes because God, not only that but Gotta Groove delivered the records to my work. Like they drove out to AP and like I met them downstairs and they they came up in a minivan and like passed all the records out of the minivan to my car. So they were the fucking best people. Uh, and, we, and literally the ne- very next day, I got in my car. I drove out to Chicago where they had their big release show at the Metro. Like 900 people showed up. It was awesome. And that was the first time I had records for sale. And that was that was the start of it. That was uh it was pretty crazy. You know, I, I felt like I was actually doing something. You know, it's it's very much like a high fidelity kind of thing where. You know, uh, John Cusack's character feels like he's putting something back in the world, yeah. and uh, that's, that's how I kind of felt. Where it's like I had been the, the critic for so long that I wanted to, to kind of put my money where my mouth was and be like, "This is good music," you know. So that was the start of uh, a a five year odyssey at this point. Where I, I think we're up to fourteen or fifteen releases right now. Um, it's obviously been a little bit slower than I wanted it to be, just because working at AP takes up a lot of my time. Um, but now I hope to spend a lot more time on it this year. Um, we already have a couple things in the works for this year, so I'm pretty excited about what's going to happen with the label, and that's kind of my, uh, right now, that's my, my, my engine right now. That's what I'm really trying to focus on and figure out 
how to take that to a, a new level this year. So um, last year was really our busiest year ever. We did uh, two, which sounds, it's not even much, but we did, you know, two new LPs and a seven inch, which is a lot, you know, mm -hmm. it was all and new music. It wasn't like it was a reissue or anything like that. So I worked with this great band called Hell and Earth Band um, who uh, feature two members who used to be in the band Counterfeit, if you know that band. And then uh, the singer of Hell and Earth Band used to actually play drums for Finch uh, on the Say Hello to Sunshine era. And he was also in Weatherbox for a time. So we put that out last year digitally, and that's going to come out uh, in about a month or two on vinyl. And then we did this amazing record called The Cathedral by a band called Meridian, which is this awesome, like, folksy, weaker than ish kind of stuff. And I did a 7-inch. Uh, I split, did a co-release 7-inch with a label called Veggie Co Records uh, with a band called Foreign Tongues, who are from, like, Boston area. And it's two, you know, really cool kind of curish balance of composure songs. So it's exciting, man. It's, it's fun to get to work with artists again on, like, a one-on-one -on -one level. And, you know, it's all handshake. It's all virtual handshake. There's not a single document that's been signed. You know, no one's under obligation to owe me six records or whatever. It's just like I want to work with things that I like and want to, you know, want to kind of like find people who have similar artistic goals as me and see what we can do. You know, that's kind of where my mindset is. I, I mean, I like it. I, I've bought a couple of your releases because I think, I don't know, I think we either have a very similar taste in music at times or we just know a lot of the same bands because uh, <laughs> uh, especially the Forecast and the Ghost Thrower releases are the two that I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that I got these two records, but I love oh, these yeah. albums. And those are great bands that people don't listen to enough. Yeah, I mean, the Forecasts are tough because I, I love the Forecasts. They're a big, um, both my wife and I are big fans of that band. And they actually did a, a cover song. We, we did a wedding seven inch actually, and they were one of the, the bands on our wedding seven inch. And they they covered the weekend ends for us. But uh, um, the forecasts are tough because they can't ever tour. Like they're super busy. Like their bass player uh, just had a kid. Um, their singer works for Crush Management, so he is all over the place with like Fall Out Boy and stuff. So like you know they they get pulled in a thousand directions, and uh, it sucks because they're so good. They've never put out a bad record. You know they have four records. And they're all great, and it was it was an honor to put out the self title. I because I, I think the self title one's their best record personally, and it was a definite honor to put that record out. I love that record, so I would say it's a tie with Shadows, but it's they're they're close. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Yeah, and, and you know what I love about the thing that I I just wrote them about them the other day because they're one of those bands that I feel like. I don't know if it's just they get the wrong roll of the dice or whatever, but they, it's like they just slip through the cracks almost. So you're just like, I don't get why this band doesn't do more, get bigger, reach that level that other bands yeah. can reach. I don't know either. You know, I, it's it's one of those things where I feel like they never. I, I, honestly, they probably have a better answer than I would, but I feel <laughs> like they never uh, they never got like a good tour. You know, yeah. they, the songs were so good, but it was they were in a tough time where there weren't a lot of bands that sounded like them that were bigger than them. Mm -hmm. So. When they were going on tour, they were doing a lot of like random headliner tours where ten kids would show because it was like them and like Down to Earth Approach and Limbeck and like they're just they're these bands that no one had a draw, so mm -hmm. it's like they couldn't go open for anybody that had a similar sound that that would you know it's that's that's the basis for any for any successful touring band is like you kind of partner up with bands that are bigger than you that have like an aesthetic that's similar, and uh, they, I feel like they just didn't get enough of those. Where like had they been out with like you know. Motion City soundtrack for six months, then maybe something would have happened. Or like, had the Get Up Kids still been around at that time period? Because the Get Up Kids were in the middle of their breakup period, and they would have been a perfect band to open for the Get Up Kids or for Hey Mercedes or something like that. Mm -hmm. But it just they never really got those breaks, and it's unfortunate because they were so good, <laughs> so good. And, and to, I, we should we should point out they're still together. Yeah, like they never they never broke up, and they, they played I think two shows last year. They played Chicago and St. Louis. So mm -hmm. 
whatever, whatever they can, they do, but it's just not very often, unfortunately. They're one of the only bands to like get out of their victory contract together. <laughs> That's, That's that true. alone. They should get a trophy just for that. I mean, <laughs> victory had a lot of those bands that just kind of didn't come out at the right time, and they're the only one that like stayed together. <laughs> yeah, it's like them and like Bayside and mm-hmm. like uh, trying to think, trying to think who else. Oh, and Silverstein. They, they, you know, they got out of their contract too. Yeah. And yeah, but most of those most of those bands just either either you were bought out or you broke up. Yeah, and you just like hated. You just were mad. Just kicking, yeah. <laughs> just kicking the dirt. Yeah. Um, and then Ghost Thrower is just like I don't know. Ghost Ghost Thrower is just a cool punk band that I just think is great. Yeah, they're and they're a band too that just cannot keep a lineup together. Like I think yeah. that uh, you know they're obviously a cool band. Travis is a is a real smart guy. Mm-hmm. Um, for whatever reason, he cannot keep a lineup <laughs> together at all, which sucks because. When bands don't play shows, I don't sell records. So, if anyone wants a Feel ghost, thrower, yeah, if anyone wants to pick up that ghost or a foreign tongue split seven inch, I have boxes of them. They are they are ready and willing to enter your record collection. That's what I gotta say about oh, that. I so. had I, we have an artist at Antique that had a went on tour last year and they got into a car accident and totaled their personal car slash touring vehicle and so they've oh. just been been unable to tour since then. And it's I have the same thing. I have like two hundred copies of an LP sitting in my house that I'm like I don't know how we're ever gonna sell this. <laughs> Yeah, could you play a show? Maybe you want to play some shows. It's yeah, like, yeah, or it's it's really frustrating because it's just like that's how like, one of the first records I did. So I, I did the um, I did the Felix Culper record, and then the very next record I did, and then a seven inch by a band called Hex Orchest, which was ex members of Engine Down, Sparta, Denali, Avail, um, like all these Richmond guys. Um, mainly it was Keely Davis from Engine Down and Denali, who I've been a huge fan of for a long time. When they announced this band, I saw he was in it, and I was like, this is awesome. And so I emailed them like, hey. You know, I'm kind of starting a label. I would love to do a seven inch if you guys have any songs. And so, you know, he he gave they gave me two songs to put out, and I love them. And I love the seven inch, and they played like literally two shows ever, and that was it. And so, you know, I sent them their 50 copies, and I like I, like a, a record store in Richmond, Virginia, bought like five, and like that was pretty much it. I have hundreds of those because <laughs> they never played a show. Yeah. And then randomly, like some dude in Germany. Like some guy I wrote the distro in Germany was like, oh, I want to buy a bunch of those for my distro. I'm like, you got it. So he bought like, I don't know, 30 or 40 for his distro because those, you know, those bands that they came from, like, like Engine Down and stuff, did really well in Europe. So they, they've sold over there. But in America, no one's bought it because I don't, first of all, I don't have retail distro. So I just have my closet in my office, you know? And then like, uh, and so that's you know, problem number one. Problem number two is that they're, just, they're older dudes who all have wives and kids and don't want to go on the road. So I can't fault them for that. But uh, it was certainly my my it was me being very naive to say, oh, th- these guys used to be an engine down. I'll sell five hundred seven inches for sure. Few five years later, and like two hundred seven just still in my box. So you know. Yeah, been there. <laughs> yeah. So you know, youthconspiracyrecords.com. If anyone wants to go buy some records, uh, I would happily happily package them up with love. Let me ask so. you. Let me ask you this because this is something that we've been talking about around uh, antique a lot recently, and I've kind of been putting it to other people because vinyl has been like the thing that we've all done for a while. But would you consider working with a band that was just like we just want to do CDs and, and digital? No, uh, digital. Yeah, um, I, I actually last year was the first year in the label where I started actively doing digital. Like before, I had not been doing digital for my releases because I felt like. It wasn't fair for me to take that money from the band because I couldn't invest the time into work the record. But this year, I kind of made time, so that's where we kind of changed things up a little bit. Um, so digital, absolutely. But CDs, I don't. My problem with that is I don't have a market for that to go into. Like I don't have retail distro, mm-hmm. so there'd be no point in me making CDs because you know who, where am I going to put them? Who's going to buy them? 
Um, I've always loved the bands makes these like like Weatherbox. Um, when we did the Weatherbox EP, uh, Follow the Rattle EP. Uh, Brian from the band was like, "Hey, do you mind if we just make CDs and put your logo?" I'm like, "That's totally fine, like absolutely." So they, you know, so they did that on their own, and that's just their money. But they put my logo on, so it looks more like official or whatever. Um, other than that, though, like I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't want to ever do CDs unless it got to the point where the label was getting enough interest that there was a demand for it. You know, if if I had a band of the label that was super hard touring, that, that, that's what happened with Tiny Engines. Tiny Engines wasn't going to make CDs, and then like their band, you know, Somos and Hotelier and Dikembe were all catching on. They're like, okay, fine, we'll fucking make CDs, you know? Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to make them because they're just it's it's the deadest of dead formats. Nobody even though CDs still sell a ton every year to like the average person, like they are the average market, like for punk, people have long since moved on from CDs, I feel. Yeah. You know, like, they, you know, they want vinyl for the collectability and they want MP3s for the portability. Um, so that's my focus for sure, just because I feel like that covers the widest swath of people who might like the music I'm putting out. Mm-hmm. But you know, I never say never. You know, it's who you know who knows who knows. So if 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 it's the right band, I would do it. You know, if it made the most sense. Yeah. No, I think that's a solid answer. Well, do you have anything like on the books for Youth Conspiracy in 2015 that you can tell us about yet? Well, um, like I said, the Hell and Earth Band record is going to come out in. Uh, I just I just approved the test presses this morning, so that's okay. really exciting. It's called We Fucking Quit. <laughs> so it's, it's already I know right great great name for a band it's like oh for an album I'm like don't play shows please play shows um, but they they just went out with Finch actually uh, with Finch and Maps and Atlases back in October and did really well on that tour and uh, they're taking a little bit of time off right now but that album is currently out digitally it's on Spotify it's on iTunes if you go to youthconspiracy.bandcamp.com you can stream it on there or you can buy it if you want um, and then that the vinyl is going to come out I want I think it's going to be March when we're going to get them back to the pressing plant like late March early April so there'll be a pre-order probably in the next couple weeks um, on youthconspiracyrecords.com. You can go there to buy, to buy the pre-order. Uh, beyond that, uh, the year's pretty wide open. Uh, I have, there's not, I, you know, I, I might as well just say the idea. Maybe that'll make me do it because I've been talking about this idea for like literally a year and a half and it's at the point now where either I just put up or shut up. Um, my favorite album of all time is Pinkerton by Weezer, favorite mm-hmm. album. And uh, I know I'm not alone in that. Lots of people love that album. And so about a year ago, I started talking to a lot of my friends and bands about doing a cover album of just Pinkerton and the associated B-sides from that time period. And a lot of bands were like, fuck yeah, let's do this. So I started think, like planning it out about a year ago, kind of got put on the back burner for a while, but I really want to make that happen this year. Um, that's a goal of mine is to put out this, comp- this uh, compilation of you know, my favorite album covered by my favorite musicians, basically. So that's what we're hoping, knock wood, whatever's nearby, to, uh, <laughs> to pull off this year. And beyond those... Who knows? You know, um, as of right now, I'm not. I don't have anything else in the docket. Like nothing. You know, I don't, I don't. There's no bands that are coming to me right now. But I'm always looking for stuff. I always love it when people email me their their uh, you know links to their band camps or whatever because you know, it's always cool cool to hear good music. So if anyone out there wants to hear wants me to hear their music, if they email Scott at youthconspiracyrecords.com, I will happily give it a listen. Um, if it's something I think that's cool and you're doing something cool, maybe we can work together. Otherwise, you know, that's cool too. Uh, so that's what's going on with Youth, youth Conspiracy. Um, I would say, you know, twitter.com slash youthconrex, facebook.com slash youthconspiracy. Um, I think it's just Youth Conspiracy. I don't even know. Um, also, I'm really excited about this too. Um, a friend, my friend Greg and I are starting a podcast that's going to start next month uh, that's going to be focused primarily on Midwestern music, uh, primarily on like punk and indie and emo from the Midwest. And it's gonna be—it's called Bed, uh, Best Midwestern, 
Uh, you know, there you go. And that's well, well done. Yeah, so if you go to uh, Facebook slash Best Midwestern or Twitter slash Best Midwestern, you can add us on there. There'll be more details of that coming uh, in the following weeks as well. But I'm very excited about that. Just nerding out about, you know, mid, mid-90s Illinois emo bands that nobody knows but me. So <laughs> I like this. Yeah, it should, should be good. I like this. Well, before we let go, I do I do feel like this, this topic should be broached because a few people did tweet it at me. But something I love about you, even though I don't think I've always – it's not always rubbed me the right way, is that I, I, I've yeah. always admired that you kind of have, like, this give-no-shits attitude about – younger blogs it seems like where you're just like i don't mind calling someone out if they're being a little ridiculous which i appreciate even though as somebody that's been on the receiving end i've been like oh that goddamn heisel <laughs> i feel like i feel like you and like thomas nassif and zach Zerler can also like a support group for each other I'm like why is scott such an asshole sometimes um yeah man I, you know it's i it's what's, what's the old thing it's uh take no shit give no fucks that's kind of my kind of my motto with that where i i found that a lot of people uh, talk on the internet as if they're not, as if they expect the person they're talking about not to see it. Yeah. I'm like, man, people see things. It's pretty easy to see what you're saying. And if you're going to call somebody out, I'm going to respond to it. And um, I was lucky enough to be in a position at AP where I was considered credible enough, I guess, <laughs> um, which was also kind of like a, a downfall because then people were like, well, you're picking on people. I'm like, well, only because you think of me as this guy. I'm, I'm just yeah. a guy with opinion, you know? Exactly. Um, but yeah, it's like I, I certainly have opinions i'm certainly not afraid to express them and i've certainly gotten in twitter wars with a, a number of people uh, i think uh i've never actually tweeted dan ozzy directly but i but uh, i can tell you that he and i do not like each other uh, <laughs> that's that's uh, a pretty common uh pretty common knowledge to most people um what's the what's the dude at pitchfork ian cohen not a fan of ian cohen but uh but that's also like there's like you know part of it's like I, i'm not gonna front part of that's jealousy because yeah. those dudes are, are doing well for themselves and good for them and those dudes are doing cool things sometimes which good for them but i feel like the disdain that with with which they both treated ap and like ap's culture which is why like if it wasn't for and this sounds totally like hyperbolic but it's true though if it wasn't for ap for the past 10 years, constantly pushing this stuff. Whether or not you liked the bands we pushed, we were still taking that genre of music, whether it's emo, whatever you want to call it, and continually giving it a platform. And if it, if it weren't for someone on that level of like a national level, giving those kind of bands opportunities to be read about and seen and heard, you wouldn't have all these cool kid websites covering this stuff because they would never have seen dollar signs, you know? And whether or not those two guys or any of those people who write about this stuff like the music or not or followed it for a long time or not, that doesn't matter. What frustrates me is the disdain and how they treat the music that they don't respect. You know, like nothing got my goat more in 2013 than when Pitchfork ignored the Paramore record, which was so fucking ignorant of them. Like, I get, like, okay, Paramore's a mall punk band. They play Warp Tour or whatever. But, like... That self-titled Paramore record is fucking amazing. It was the best album of the year that year, in my opinion. And it was it was sonically adventurous, and it was produced by like the guy who made the M83 record, and they had all those crazy things. And they just totally just was like, nope, not going to cover it. I'm like, you guys are just being ignorant. Like, you're choosing not to cover something because teenagers like it, because 16-year-olds with bright orange hair or whatever, you know, like this. And it's it's so to me that's so like demeaning to the musician to say like you're not worthy of being written about by us this fancy tastemaker you know and then you have like noisy putting out these articles that are just shitting on things and i'm like that's not what it's all about man like to me it's never been about like talking down 
or I guess like, you know, oh, look how cool I am because I know more than you do. You know, it's, it's, it's always been about like being the big brother. And that's kind of where I came into it. You know, that was my brother to me. It was, he was the big brother and he walked me through the stuff I didn't know. And when I fucked up on something, you know, he would educate me and that could be music. That could be life. You know, and that's what frustrates me when I see these sites that just are so insulting of things they don't necessarily understand, mm-hmm. um, and just and just you know diminish it or dismiss it. And I'm like, man, you're missing out on so much cool stuff. Like, for example, like my 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 top, end of the year list, my top five was Circus Survive in this is an order. Five was Circus Survive, then Braid, then Beartooth, then Law Dispute, then Weezer. And I'm like, that to me is pretty fucking diverse. And anyone who's listened to that Beartooth record can't tell me it's not fucking awesome from like just a just a songwriting standpoint. They're great songs, but like someone like Dan Ozzy or whatever uh, is never going to listen to it ever because it's the dude who is in Attack Attack and they play Warp Tool. I'm like, man, you're just being so dismissive of things that you don't quite understand because you want to write about beach slang some more or fucking whatever it is, you know. And that's what bums me out. Is like it's, it shouldn't be about the negativity. It should be about like how do you foster a positive environment. For musicians, and that that doesn't mean you can't be critical, but just to take shits on things like, like listen, I'll defend fucking Falling in Reverse until I'm blue in the face because Falling in Reverse, guess what? Write good songs. Like you might not like the songs they write, which is totally your opinion, but like they, from an actual songwriting standpoint, write really interesting songs that are memorable, and very few bands of any genre can do that. And so, if that's the takeaway from this podcast that Scott Heisel likes Falling in Reverse, that's fine, <laughs> you know. But uh, but I feel like there's so much of that stuff that's just missed out on because of this preconceived notion that if you're making music that teenagers like, it can't possibly be good, which is just absurd to me. No, I, I, I completely agree. We don't always see eye to eye on everything, but I agree with that point. And I, what I like about it, because I, I talk a lot of shit online as well, but sometimes I don't look at it as much as like you, someone being an asshole, as much as like you're offering, making, forcing me to look at something in a different way than how I'm clearly thinking about it. You know what I mean? Where, yeah. you, where you're just kind of making me sit back and be like, maybe I am being a little egotistical about my own worth in this big thing we call the music business or whatever yeah. it is. I, I feel I feel like the biggest point to make that I've made a thousand times on whether it was on allpress.com and a comment or whatever is that just because you don't like something does not invalidate its artistic merit. Mm-hmm. And that's that, and that's the and there's plenty of shit I don't like. I mean, listen, if you want to, I mean, you know, now that I'm I'm no longer tethered to AP, I can tell you what I think about all those bands. Like, <laughs> you know, we wrote about some good bands, we wrote about some bad bands. You know, but a lot of times those bad bands pay the bills. You know, like yeah. I I never want to hear another Sleeping with Siren song in my life personally. <laughs> But like a band like Falling in Reverse, I'll totally back that band because that band, as much as it pains people to think of it, they are punk in aesthetic where they do things that are brash and they push buttons and they write catchy songs and people are offended by that because it makes them remember them. And that's what they hate. That's the same reason why like, you know, uh, who, what's the other fucking band? Like Blackville Brides are the same kind of thing where like people hate Blackville Brides, but they don't know why they hate it. They, they just hate it because, oh, well, fuck this good looking guy who writes songs that get stuck in my head that has a lot of screaming 16-year-old girl fans. I'm like, well, that shows more inadequacy with you as a person than them as a band because let them, you know, you don't have to listen to it. Who gives a shit? But people just love to be upset about things. It's That's the one thing I've learned for over the years is that people love to bitch about everything. And uh, it was always fun at AP when we would post an article about like, you know, 19 bands you should check, well, whatever it was. And like the, the default photo would be, I don't know, Bring Me the Horizon. So you put it on Facebook and all kids see is just the Bring Me the Horizon photo, and they never click through, and they just start shit-talking the whole article. And I'm like, you didn't read it. You didn't read it. You know, it's, 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 nothing is more frustrating as a writer than to write something about something you believe in 
and know that the person commenting on it did not read what you wrote. It's so insulting. So uh, that's why I try never to judge, you know, uh, a, a, a new story by its headline, you know, a filled book by its cover thing, because work goes into these things. And even the most clickbaity headline generally has a point, uh, you know, in the article. And so I encourage people to maybe, you know, sheathe their keyboards for five minutes <laughs> and, actually, and actually, you know, read what somebody took the time and energy to research and write instead of just dismissing it because they forgot the one band that you thought of or whatever it is. You know, there's so much, there's so much weird tearing down of articles, especially in music uh, online and especially in our, in our little scene. You know, it's, I, I, don't, I don't know if it's like that on like hip hop websites or, or, you know, whatever. I mm-hmm. think the smartest thing Pitchfork ever did was not allow comments because if Pitchfork had comments, holy fuck, it'd be disastrous. Uh, yeah, it's, just, it's weird. You know, you go to like, you know, the AV Club, again, I love the AV Club, but they'll do a list of like 14 movies that featured a surprise twist in the third act or whatever. And the first comment's like, I can't believe you forgot this. I'm like, well, dude, <laughs> maybe, they, maybe they didn't forget it. They could write every movie. It's like, you got you to gotta cut it off somewhere. Yeah. You know? but, uh, but yeah, man, that's, that's, my, you know, that's my thing is that like I feel that there's a lot more, you know, working at AP, I came into AP being like, okay, they cover some cool bands. They cover some bands I don't like to, but that's fine. And I've, I've left there liking a lot more bands that we've written about that I never thought I would have liked, you know, like that I, that have kind of grown up on me over the time where I'm like, you know what, like for example, Bring Me the Horizon, they're not necessarily my personal cup of tea. I'm not going to put it on when I'm trying to go to sleep or something, but it's, they write really good songs for what they do and they connect with people on a certain level and you can't, you can't teach that, you know, like you, that's something that just happens. That's, that's an instinctual thing. And uh, there's a lot of bands like that where, I can look at them and understand what makes people like them and, and justify that merit and that talent, even though it's not something that I'm comfortable with personally. You know, like metalcore, I think most metalcore is the fucking worst. You know, I think like those bands are the dregs of society when it comes to like, it's just rehashing new metal at this point. But there are some good bands out of that scene which produce and produce well. And you're like, wow, you can actually make good music out of this mold which everyone finds themselves stuck in, you know? Like, under Oath is a perfect example. Under Oath never gave a fuck. Under Oath got popular by signing like Taking Back Sunday. And then they said, all right, we're going to sound like Botch now. And then they made three insane records. And that got them more and more popular because they stuck to their guns and they did what they wanted to do. And that's, that's something that I've, I've always you know, respected is that it's easy, deceptively easy, to write a catchy song and make people like it. You know, It's not hard to write a catchy song. But it's much more difficult to keep people and to, to make them respect what you're doing. And that's why when I see a band like that, like Under Oath, for example, who take that risk and pull it off, it's like, fuck yeah, you did it, man. Like you you told every, all the fucking pretenders to the throne that this is how you do it. Or like Thrice, another perfect example, or Thursday. Like those are bands that, in my mind, if there were like a rock and roll hall of fame for our level or our type of music, those bands are first ballot in because those three bands specifically changed the past 10 years. And unfortunately, a lot of really shitty bands took influence. You know, but you can't help that. That's just, you know, that's, uh, there's always going to be shitty bands. So I'm, I'm totally rambling right now. What the fuck am I talking about? Oh, no, you're fine. (laughs) Don't even worry about it. It's cool. It's cool. I'm just going on a fucking rant right now. It's fine. I like it. Um, we are kind of running out of time, but I do, you know, I appreciate you so much for coming on the show today. And I feel like we could, we could keep this conversation going for like another couple episodes. So I'm sure, I'm sure you'll come (laughs) back in the months ahead, but it looks like you're going to start your own podcast soon. So hopefully people will tune in and listen to that as well. That's best Midwestern, correct? Facebook slash best Midwestern and Twitter slash best Midwestern. Uh, 
Okay, so there's that, and then we have Youth Conspiracy. I looked it up. It is Youth Conspiracy Records on Facebook. What is uh, is it? Youth Conspiracy Rex on Twitter? It's 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 Youth Con Rex because there's too many characters. So. <laughs> too youth, many youth, words. Youth Con Rex on Twitter, or you can go to youthconspiracyrecords.com to to buy stuff, or you can go to if you want to hear a bunch of our music, you can go to youthconspiracy.bandcamp.com. We got a bunch of stuff on there that you can stream and check out. So. Awesome, and then your personal stuff is just Scott Heisel and everything, right? Yep, slash Scott at Scott Heisel, all that good stuff. Feel free to add me. You know, I, uh, I I'm not verified, so you you can't be positive that's me or not. And I will say, if anyone out there knows how to get me a blue checkmark, that's all I want for Christmas next year. I want <laughs> so bad, so bad. I want a blue checkmark. And it's so. E before I, not I before E, just for people. It is, to yeah. That. It is. I'm, I'm German. That's why. So that's, that's a German thing. <laughs> All right, Scott. Well, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us today. This episode's going to come out later this week, I believe. People have been asking for it since I mentioned it like in the middle of December, so I'm glad that we were able to make it happen. Yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, we'll definitely have you back on soon. Uh, best of luck and everything. I know that it's like you're in like this weird place right now, but I feel like it's it's good. I feel like you got something big coming. I think it's going to be a big year for you. I, I certainly hope so. <laughs> <laughs> you have my vote. You have my support. I'll be there. Thanks, James. All right, man. Thanks so much. Have a, I hope that you have a great day. Yeah, talk to you soon.